And so let's pray. Let's express our dependence on him. Um, our gracious God, you are sovereign, and you are providentially ordaining um, every moment since the beginning of the world, since the beginning of time, um, and into eternity. So Lord, we just we trust in you. I ask that you would um, help us to recognize that in the span of human history, even in the span of, of eternity, our, our lives are but a mist. We are a vapor. And so, Lord, we plead your mercy, um, for we put our hope in temporal things um, when it should be the, in the eternal things. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to see hope in a new light today. I pray that you would um, give grace uh, to the words that I say, and I uh, just pray that you would um, calm and bring peace and joy and love as well today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, we're starting a mini-series, mini-sermon series, not mini-series, a mini-sermon <laughs> mini series on the themes of Advent. So, the Advent is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, um, and then on Christmas, we light the Christ candle, or it's already lit, already lit as we've talked about already today. Um, and so I thought it might be helpful to just talk about Advent a little bit before I jump into the text and my sermon on hope, um, So uh, just at RVBC. So Advent marks the start of the Christmas season, and like Darren said, it means coming or arrival. It's from Latin. And it's a time and a season that we as a church and many churches uh, throughout history, throughout church history, have set aside to remember and reflect on the wonder of the Incarnation. That's God coming to earth to fulfill all the promises he made of a Messiah that would come and save the people from their sins. And it feels especially relevant to us today in the busyness of life to set aside time to remember and marvel and worship at God made flesh on Emmanuel, God with us. So the themes of Advent have been curated by centuries of church history and tradition as those prevalent in talking about Jesus' arrival and relevant for us today as we live in a time that we look back and celebrate the first advent, but also look forward to the second advent, a kind of already and not yet. The already is we have the good news of Christ and the knowledge that all of the promises made about a Messiah that would save his people from his sins have come true. But we, we live in the not yet as well. We, we wait for the day when he will come again and make, as Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, all of the sad things come untrue. We get glimpses of the themes of Advent, and I think especially during this time of year. We get glimpses of hope as we see people helping others, you know, people dropping those gold coins in the Salvation Army buckets, or, you know, you hear of some devastating tragedy and people just coming alongside, especially in the news or times of this year, people just coming alongside and rescuing those people. We, we get glimpses of peace as people set aside their differences and, and come to celebrate in, in this season. Um, we get glimpses of joy on the faces of children as they open their presents on Christmas Day. And we get glimpses of love as we give of ourselves and our resources for the good of others. That's the, those are glimpses of grace that God gives to us in this time. But we also, even, even with glimpses, we also groan, as Paul says in Romans 8, that creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth 
and we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons. So even as we get glimpses of hope, there's groanings of despair. Even as we get glimpses of peace, there is war and strife in families. <clears throat> even as we get glimpses of joy, there's sorrow. And even as we get glimpses of love, there, are, there is selfishness and there is hate in this world. And ultimately, as we see in the last candle of Advent, the Christ candle, the glimpses will never be truly fulfilled unless Christ is central, or the groans will never be silenced unless he returns, or until he returns. So that's why we as a church are taking time this Advent season to focus on the themes of the Advent weeks. In the busyness of life and the season that can pull our attention further and further away from Christ, Advent is a time where we can set aside as a church to focus on our true source of hope, peace, joy, and love. And that's Christ. So this week's theme is hope. And I'll be preaching from Hebrews six seventeen through 20. So if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews six seventeen through 20, or turn on your Bibles, or in the, the Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's 1004, page 1004. As you turn to Hebrews six seventeen through 20, or if, if you're not already there, um, I'm going to ask the kids the Christmas question, okay? What are you hoping for for Christmas? What are you hoping for for Christmas? I know Thatcher has an answer. Go ahead, Thatcher. A hoverboard. All right. <laughs> yes, yeah, so what are you hoping for for Christmas? A phone. All right. To your family. All right. Legos. Legos. All right. Michael? Beats? Oh, peace. Okay. <laughs> All right. The food? All right. Maddie? Money. All right. Lauren? A tablet. All right. Those are all great answers. Oh, we got two more back here. Olivia and JC, go for it. A dog. Yes. The American Girl doll, Kimber. Yes. All right. Because there's a bunch of different ones, right? Yeah. All right. So those are, those are all great answers. And when I, initially, when I initially started planning for my sermon, I had an inkling that there was more to what the Bible is talking about when it talks about hope than when we talk about what we're hoping for, especially when kids talk about what we're hoping for for Christmas. Like, and it's not, but it's not just that we're hoping for this thing. You kids are all hoping for those things to happen at Christmas. And it's not like, biblical hope is not just that, but stronger. It's, an ex, it's not an expectation, it's not a wish, it's not a desire. I think when we look at the passage we'll be in today, we'll see a different picture of hope. And it's my prayer today that we will leave having a better understanding of biblical hope and that we will hold fast to that hope. So let's look at Hebrews 6. I'm going to start in verse 13, actually, and read through the entire passage. Um, just so we get a little bit more context. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. 
And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. And here's where we'll focus our attention. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There are several themes of hope that are echoed in this passage similar to Old Testament and New Testament passages in regards to hope. So we see, first, looking at verses 17 and 18, that our hope is rooted in God's character and being. First, it starts off, 17, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things... So we see that God showed that he was going to keep his promise. He made sure that the heirs of the promise understood it was going to happen. And the character of his purpose is unchangeable. He sovereignly reigns over the universe, and what he purposes will come to pass. So the two unchangeable things that he swore by were his oath and his promise. Now, you might ask the question, why can we trust in these two things? Why is, why is the promise and oath of God uh, such a guarantee? Well, it goes later, following in the passage, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. So, we can trust in these two things because it is impossible for God to lie. It is inconsistent with God's character to lie. And God is not like us, where... Um, we have different personality traits and they're all kind of mixed together. God's, per, God's characters and attributes are eternally consistent and they're eternally manifest in his being. So when we say that God is love, that means it's eternally coexistent with God's wrath and justice and his, his truth, so the inability of God for him to lie. God is a God of truth. As it con, it's confirmed in Titus 1, 2, in John fourteen six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So our encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us is rooted in God's character, in his inability, in, in his being, right? So because his being is eternally consistent, it's our encouragement to hold fast to that hope is rooted in his inability to lie. So, I think it might be helpful if we turn to Genesis 22 to see what God actually promised Abraham. Because the author of Hebrews does quote it partially um, in verse 14. But if we turn to Genesis 22, we can see exactly what God promised Abraham. So Genesis 22, starting in verse 15. says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, 
By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So in Genesis, we see the trajectory of the Bible is set, right? The storyline, the arc, the storyline of the Bible. Um, I'm a teacher. One of the things we talk about is storyline and plot structure. So we see in Genesis that the storyline is set. We get the exposition, right? And then we get the inciting incident, the fall. And then if you look at your children's notes, you'll see those things. And then you get the rising action, and that trajectory, the, the storyline, the arc of the Bible is set in Genesis, which climaxes at the arrival, life, and death of Jesus on the cross. And then we get the falling action in the church age and resolution when Christ comes again. So we're not there yet. We're still in the storyline uh, that the, the Bible talks about. But the writer of Hebrews, like Paul in Galatians 3, realizes that Christ, so it's like foreshadowing in literature, right? That Christ is that offspring and will bless the entire world. And the next phrase in the verse, in verse 17, is that we flee, or 18, is that we who have fled for refuge, we who would be heirs of this promise, the promise to send a Messiah to save the people from the sins, the, the promise to bless the whole world through one offspring of Abraham. Us who are heirs of that promise need to flee to God for refuge. It's interesting that the author of Hebrews would use this word picture when talking about hope. Part, I think partly it's because he understands our untethered nature before we take hold of the promise uh, of salvation, before we take hold of the good news of, gospel, uh, of the gospel, how we are depraved, sinful, hopeless in the wrath to come. We must flee to the safety of Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. John Piper has uh, a way of saying that we need to be covered with the asbestos armor of Christ, to stand before the blazing wrath of God. So in, and Christ has promised eternal, abundant life for those who flee to him for refuge. So in John 3.16 and John 10.10. 10. And because he has promised it, because of his character and being, he will cause it to come to pass. And for the author's audience and for us, that promise has come to pass. He has come. He has saved the entire. Uh, he has saved the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And what a wonderful hope that we can have as we look back at that first advent, at that first fulfillment of the promise. And so, in Hebrews ten twenty three, the author of Hebrews points to that, uh, points to the fulfillment of that promise. And causes us to look forward. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So in this verse, and in our passage, the author of Hebrews is encouraging his hearers to look back. Look back at the God who made the most amazing promise to mankind. 
and kept it as the basis for their hope for the future. I'm just going to say that again. That the author of Hebrews is encouraging his hearers to look back at the God who made the most amazing promise to mankind and kept it as the basis for their hope for the future. So in verse 18, he talks about those, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the hope set before the, before the hearers of the, uh, of the writer for, of Hebrews was that Christ shall come again. Um, in Titus 2.13, it talks about the blessed hope, that we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So there is, there is that tension between the already, that God has promised to send the Savior, the Messiah, and he has fulfilled that promise. But there's also this blessed hope, this hope that is before us, that we have, that is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus talks about it as well. In John 14, 1 through 3, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So the, the, the hope that is set before us is that Christ will come again and take us to where he is. Um, and then finally, in this, the last part of verse 18, it talks about holding fast to the hope. And that's where I get the title of my message. Hold fast means to lay hold of, to cling to tightly, to be satisfied with, to trust in, Put all of your eggs in the basket of God's hope. Bank on God's hope. Because our hope is not as the world hopes. It's rooted in God. We can put all of our trust in the hope set before us. So it was why the author of Hebrews was writing to his audience in the first place. As we, uh, if you were here when we went through Hebrews, right, the theme that Steve preached on was that Jesus is better. So press on. So Jesus is better than the hope that the world has. We need to hold fast to the hope that Jesus offers, that he provides. Don't fall back into the old hope, the hope in the law and your keeping of the law. Hold fast to this hope that we have, that he will come again, that his hope is better. So from verse 18, we see that our hope is not like we hope for a snow day whether you're a student or a teacher, um, or for the Packers to make it to the playoffs this season, or for presents on Christmas Day, or that bonus from work. Biblical hope is a confident expectation rooted in God's faithful character and being. Biblical hope is a confident expectation rooted in God's faithful character and being. We live in this time where the greatest promise has been fulfilled. And because of that, we can place all of our hope, our trust. We can, we can cling to that hope. We can 
bank on it. We can be satisfied with that hope. And because we can put our hope there, because we see the fulfillment of that promise, we see the fulfillment of God who has uh, fulfilled the greatest promise to mankind, our faith in God's promise to be with us until the end of the age and to return for us is secure. So the application comes to us. Where is our hope rooted? Where is your hope rooted? In Christmas, I think it's really easy to find hope in this season. As I talked about before, uh, we see people helping others. Uh, and and uh, we see just um, the lights in the darkness. Um, it might be easy for you, but it also, as I talked about as well, it might be hard. It's hard when things look nice. There's lights in the darkness. Everyone seems happy, especially in the Target ads. Um, but only if you can afford that, you know, Keurig or the awesome thing that they have, um, then you would be happy too. That's how the world hopes. But we need to find our hope in him, who is a God of truth, who cannot lie, who has ordained his purposes and sovereignly willed them to come to pass, as evidenced in the first advent. We have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the blessed hope set before us. Our hope is rooted in God's character and being, a God who cannot lie and who has promised and fulfilled promises and is faithful. Moving on to verses 19 and 20, we see that our hope is inextricably linked to our salvation. In verse 19, we see that this hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's something interesting in this entire passage in verses 17 through 20. There's two, the ESV uses two, uh, hope twice, okay? So the word hope is used twice. But I think if we look at the NASB, and when I was uh, doing some study and I, I wandered into the Greek interlinear text, and it's really interesting, and I'm going to try and pull it out. Um, and it's, it's easier if we look at the NASB. So I'm going to read that. And it says, verse 18 and 19, I kind of link my two points, and um, hopefully it'll show um, what I'm going for. So 18 says, So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. So these two hopes, the hope that is set before us, and this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, are actually the same word in, in the Greek. So like, it's not just the same usage, Right? It's not just the same actual word twice, but it's just the same exact word once. So the word translated as hope is used as both the object of the preposition at the end of, the verse, eight, at the end of verse 18 
and the antecedent for the pronoun in verse 19. Okay? That's, I know that's a lot of grammar. All you CC people are probably like geeking out a little bit. So um, if you could diagram this sentence, then you would see that uh, the word translated as hope is used as both the object of the preposition in verse 18 and the antecedent for the pronoun in verse 19. So there's only one use of the word hope in the whole passage. The author is anchoring the word hope in the passage as a pivot around what I see are the two points. The first one being that our hope is a confident expectation rooted in God's faithful character and being. And the second is that hope is inextricably linked to our salvation. So when we start to think about how these two points are tied together, when we talk about salvation and God's faithfulness, it's easy to see why the author would use just one instance of the word hope to talk about these ideas. Now hope is linked to salvation elsewhere in the Bible as well. And we're saved by grace through faith. And in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it talks about the definition of faith. I'm sure many of you have it memorized. Hebrews 11.1. 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it's important that we understand what hope is in order for us to understand saving faith. And in Romans 8, Paul, as we've uh, seen before, he's writing to Romans. It says that not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And in our passage, we see in verses 19 and 20 that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We see that the hope that we have is anchored in, tied to salvation. Just like the hope that we have is not only founded in God, the hope that we have, the biblical hope, the um, confident expectation that God has done what he said he did and will do what he says he will do is founded in God's character. It's sustained by him as well because of what he has done through Christ. So first of all, the first part of verse 19 is a great metaphor that capitalizes on the verses before it. The hope that we are to hold fast to, which is rooted in God's character and being, can be for us, In an age where hopes are often dashed and the future is uncertain, an anchor. The hope that we are to hold fast to, which is rooted in God's character and being, can be for us in an age where hopes are often dashed and the future is uncertain, an anchor. It's a metaphor that even though many of the uh, original Jewish hearers and us were not seafarers, we don't spend a whole lot of time on a boat, um, unless maybe you have a boat, like Tim, um, then, uh, then we, don't, we still understand the metaphor, right? Boats, anchors, keep the boats steady. Anchors go where we can't see, and they secure what we can see. And they're used when you found good fishing, okay? So our hope is rooted in God's character, 
and a faithful character and is anchored by the work of Christ. Right? It's, just, it's a powerful, profound metaphor that I think really um, demonstrates and really hammers home the hope that we have. Right? It's not just, not just um, like I said before, it's not like the world hopes. Our hope is an anchor. The hope that we have in Christ is an anchor to our soul. It uh, keeps us steady. It goes where we can't see and sustains us in the, thing, in the trials and, and circumstances that we can see. And um, it is used when, uh, and it is, is great to have an anchor to find and plumb the depths of the goodness of God. And so <clears throat> our hope is rooted in God's faithful character and anchored by the work of Christ. It's linked to our salvation. As we see in verse 19, our hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Christ has gone before us into the inner place, the holy of holies, to make atonement for our sins. Christ entered in the inner place by his own blood as a sacrifice once and for all time. Later on in Hebrews, the author talks about this. He specifically uh, explains what happened when Christ entered into the inner place. So there's a little bit, this is like a, an explanation, a little bit more of what happens when we, he said that he enters into the inner place where Christ has gone. So let's turn to Hebrews 9. It's just a few more pages in front of you. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, even through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The original hearers understood well the imagery behind this metaphor. And those of us here, when Steve preached the Leviticus, may remember well, uh, the imagery behind this, the Day of Atonement. The author of Hebrews is specifically and exactly describing where Christ went and how he accomplished our atonement. He says that it, he's explaining how it is better. Christ's sacrifice was better than the blood of goat, goats and bulls, heifers. And our hope is better. Christ anchors our soul to the inner place. He is the forerunner, the one who has gone before us. Our hope is rooted in God's person and character, and that same God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, that has fulfilled his promise to Abraham, will be faithful to fulfill his promise to us. So our hope is that Christ has, by his perfect life and atoning death, entered into the inner place and can bring us near to God. And now he intercedes as a high priest, better than, than the earthly system. He inter, intercedes after the order of Melchizedek. We have confident assurance that Christ has gone before us 
and will complete what he has said he will do. So, this Christmas, our hope is not in the hope of Advent, uh, in the traditional sense that people might think of when they just think of this season and hope just kind of floating out there, just that wish or desire or expectation. No, our hope is not in hope. Our hope is not in peace. Our hope is not in joy. And our hope is not in love. Our hope is in the completed work of Christ and the promise from a faithful God that he will accomplish his purposes in his time and his way. That is the confident expectation, the hope that we can hold fast to during this time when we catch glimpses of the graces God has given, but also experience the groanings of this time as we wait with all of the creation for the fulfillment of our hope. Would you please pray with me? God, it is um, an amazing thing to think about the hope that you've given to us, um, how our hope can look back and be confident in the fulfillment of the promises that you gave to Abraham, that by your offspring you would bless the entire world. And we are heirs of that promise. So, Lord, we just ask that you would help us flee to you, flee to Christ, his completed work, for refuge, that we might hold fast to the hope that we have, not only in the completed work of Christ, but also in the promise that he has made to us, that he will come again, that he is preparing a place for us. So, Lord, we just ask that uh, we might that you would help us to anchor our souls in the busyness of this season as we set aside time to focus and dwell on the glory of Advent. You coming, and you will come again. Help us to put our hope in you, our confident expectation in who you are, what you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.